a military and justice episode on the Anything and Everything with Therese podcast. You're listening to a military and justice episode on the Anything and Everything with Therese podcast. This episode is brought to you by WYSK Spark Radio, the spark of the South. Find it on Live 365 Spark Radio. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Military Injustice. Last week, we began going over the issue of the ACCA document, and we saw the unlawful command influence of Colonel Bloss and Lieutenant Colonel Rickard. This week, we will begin on page 15 with the unlawful command influence of Colonel Derbyshire. As I always offer you to see the official documents yourself, you can find them on the website www.militaryandjusticelawyer.com. I will also have a link to that website in the show notes below. Once you are at the website, go to the upper right-hand side of the screen and click on Case. Once in there, go to the button that says ACCA document. There you'll be able to follow along and you will also be able to read everything about the case in your own time. Now I will begin in the middle of page 15 with Colonel Darbyshire's entrance into the court-martial. Colonel Darbyshire came into petitioner's court-martial as a government witness to testify against petitioner as an adverse character witness for which he was shown to be not qualified because he didn't know petitioner well enough. That's at R at 11.84 through 11.86. And to testify about petitioner's personal and private counseling methods and techniques of which Colonel Derbyshire, by his own testimony, knew nothing. You find that at R at 11.89 to 91 and 11.96 L21 to 22. Although Colonel Derbyshire was not qualified as a character witness, and he knew nothing about petitioner's personal counseling techniques, his presence in a courtroom was extremely prejudicial against Petitioner because Colonel Derbyshire brought in with him the full weight of Fort Polk and JRTC's command to bear against Petitioner in the presence of the members. The record states, Chaplain David Derbyshire, U.S. Army, was called as a witness for the prosecution was sworn and testified as follows. Question. Sir, would you please state your name for the court? Answer. David Derbyshire. Question. Sir, what is your current duty position? Answer. I am the command chaplain here at Fort Polk, and that can be found at R at 1183 to 1184. When Colonel Derbyshire was identified in front of the members as a witness for the prosecution and then testified that he was the command chaplain here at Fort Polk, he identified himself in front of the members 
as the convening authority's Brigadier General James Yarbrough, personal advisor on all things pertaining to morale, morality, and ethics, as is the official role of the military chaplain in regards to his unit's commander. Would not Colonel Derbyshire, being the convening authority's personal advisor, and consequently working on a daily basis, hand-to-hand, with General Yarbrough, bring in, as a prosecution witness, the full weight of Fort Polk's command, as though General Yarbrough was doing so himself, to bear against petitioner in a court-martial, where the members had to decide on a guilt or innocence of petitioner pertaining to an issue directly related to morale, morality, and ethics, given the sexual nature of the allegations against petitioner. One has to wonder, was there an implicit command by the convening authority to find petitioner guilty when his own personal advisor in all matters pertaining to morale, morality, and ethics came in to testify against petitioner as a prosecution witness in a matter explicitly pertaining to morale, morality, and ethics, allegations against petitioner of sexual misconduct against his own minor daughter? Since Colonel Derbyshire was not qualified as a character witness and testified that he knew nothing about what he was supposed to be testifying, as shown supra, was Colonel Derbyshire's presence as a prosecution witness then entirely for the purpose of making the convening authority's purpose and intent to find petitioner guilty known to the members to send a message to the members, find Captain Loya guilty? Would this be the public's perception? At the bottom of page 16 and going into page 17, is further evidence of this the fact that the convening authority appointed his own deputy, the vice commander of Fort Polk, Colonel Bloss, to be the president of the panel as shown supra. Could the members have been influenced even at a subconscious level to find petitioner guilty, given that as officers in the U.S. Army, they would know that at the command table, in command meetings, Colonel Bloss would be sitting at Brigadier General Yarbrough's right hand, and Colonel Derbyshire would be sitting at Brigadier General Yarbrough's left hand, one as his deputy, the other as his personal advisor. Could the members have even subconsciously interpreted this as an order from Brigadier General Yarbrough to find Captain Loya guilty? Since Colonel Derbyshire's function as command chaplain was to be a liaison between the commander of Fort Polk and JRTC, and the officers under his command, being that such is the function of military chaplains between unit commanders and their troops. Is not that a possibility? One thing we know for sure 
the members found petitioner guilty of producing child pornography under Specification 1 of Charge 2, when there was no such pornography in evidence, but Colonel Bloss had assumed in the hearing of the members that pornography had been discovered, and their finding of guilty of this specification had to be disapproved after trial, as shown in the appendices. We also know that the members sentenced petitioner to 108 years confinement, when the average sentence for similar and worse offenses is about 8 years. You can find that in Appendix F. Could this be because the chaplain advisor to the convening authority in all matters pertaining to morality, the representative of God to the convening authority, and to Fort Polk, came to testify as a prosecution witness against petitioner? Isn't the aberrational sentence issued by the members itself evidence that they were under great moral command pressure? At the bottom of page 17 and going into page 18, we also know that the members found petitioner guilty of another specification, specification 4 of charge 1. Despite the fact that Petitioner was physically away from Louisiana in Iraq, at the time that crime is alleged to have occurred in Louisiana, since the location and date of that specification are at or near Fort Polk, Louisiana, on or about or between November 27th and November 30th, 2007. That can be found at R at charge sheet. Appendix C. While petitioner's physical presence in Iraq is recorded on his DD-214 as service in Iraq, 11-26-2007 to September 13, 2008, that can be found on his DD-214 dated 2013, July 11th. Appendix C. And while the alleged victim testified at the Article 32 hearing, he deployed to Iraq. Two weeks before he left, he kind of stopped. Nothing really happened in the two or three weeks before he deployed. That can be found R at Article 32, Transcript, Page 4, Appendix C. And yet this particular specification is still attached to Petitioner showing that petitioner, who categorically asserts, I did not commit the crimes I was convicted of, is indeed serving time in prison for at least one crime the above facts show he could not have committed. The GCMCA disapproved the erroneous finding of guilty by the members is not an indication that there was no prejudice to petitioner. And whether or not it is an indication that the GCMCA did not intend for unlawful command influence to enter the deliberation room is irrelevant because the fact is that Colonel Bloss's assumption that pornography had been discovered affected the finding of guilty of that specification by the members who were subordinate to Colonel Bloss, the convening authority's second-in-command. That, indeed, unlawful command influence 
was at play is evident in that Colonel Bloss was appointed not just as a member of the panel, but as president of the panel. Why does this make UCI evident? Because as deputy commander of JRTC and Fort Polk, Colonel Bloss could not be just another member of the panel under the presidency of a subordinate officer to him. The deputy commander of JRTC and Fort Polk could not be just a member of a panel under the presidency of a major or a lieutenant colonel or of another colonel who was not the second-in-command to Brigadier General Yarborough, the GCMCA. That would not be proper in a military environment. The bottom of page 18 going into 19. Consequently, Colonel Bloss, because he was the GCMCA second-in-command, the deputy commander of JRTC and Fort Polk, had to be the president of the panel which of necessity and clearly brought the command of JRTC and Fort Polk to lead the subordinate members in their deliberations regarding petitioner's guilt or innocence and sentencing. Isn't this unlawful command influence? This command influence was further bolstered when the GCMCA's personal advisor took the stand as a prosecution witness against Petitioner. Seen together the way Colonel Bloss and C.H. Colonel Derbyshire each introduced themselves and their roles in regards to command will perhaps make this clear. Colonel Bloss said, Deputy Commander Chief of Staff, MSC, Director for JRTC in Fort Polk, considered part of the commander, Deputy Commander and Command Sergeant Major Installation is considered part of the command group for headquarters here. And you can find that at R at 308. C.H. Colonel Derbyshire said, I am the command chaplain here at Fort Polk. And that can be found at R at 1183 and 1184. Could this have not been interpreted by the members even if at a subconscious level as a directive from command to find Captain Lawyer guilty? Would this not give the appearance to the general public that the command of Fort Polk entered the room, ganged up on Petitioner, who was only a captain in rank, and therefore Captain Lawyer never had a chance to win his case? If the members in finding Petitioner guilty of the pornography specification when there was no pornography at all in evidence, what other mistakes did the members make in their findings due to Colonel Bloss's command influence? Provided the above evidence in the record, which was not previously raised nor considered by his honorable court, would not any member of the public not only get the impression by Colonel Bloss's appointment as president of petitioner's panel at his court-martial and C.H. Colonel Derbyshire's taking the stand as prosecution witness that the command of J.R.T.C. and Fort Polk entered both the courtroom and the deliberation room, but he, she would have to conclude that, in fact, it did. At the bottom of page 19, going into 20, 
Does the above evidence not show beyond reasonable doubt that Colonel Bloss's appointment as president of petitioner's panel and Colonel Derbyshire's presence as a prosecution witness introduced not only an appearance, but in actuality, the GCMCA's command authority into both the courtroom and the deliberation room to where the panel of officers found petitioner guilty of at least one specification for which there was zero evidence, but which was morally repugnant. Does not the fact that the finding of guilty of specification one of charge two had to be later disapproved bring into grave doubt all of the findings of guilt in petitioner's case? Especially after evidence surfaced after trial, in the form of petitioner's DD-214, that petitioner could not have committed the crime alleged under specification 4 of charge 1 because he was physically in Iraq at the time alleged. The Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces has ruled that, and I quote, Command influence is the mortal enemy of military justice. The exercise of command influence tends to deprive service members of their constitutional rights. If directed against a court member, then the tendency is to deprive the accused of his right to a forum where impartiality is not impaired because the court personnel have a personal interest in not incurring reprisals by the convening authority due to a failure to reach his intended result, as was perfectly clear to Congress when it enacted the Uniform Code of Military Justice and the Military Justice Act of 1968. And as the judges of this court have always understood, command influence involves a corruption of the truth-seeking function of the trial process. End quote. U.S. First Thomas 22MJ388, CMA Lexus 1502-1986. And as mentioned above, the U.S. Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals ruled that, and I quote, Although an accused has the initial burden of raising unlawful command influence, UCI, he only has to present some evidence that UCI exists, end quote. U.S. vs. Mobley, USA, FCCA, CCA Lexus, 1102-2013. Does not the evidence brought to this honorable court's attention in this brief, which was not previously considered by this honorable court, meet the burden required by Mobley that some evidence that UCI exists and the truth-seeking function of the trial process in petitioner's case was indeed corrupted by UCI. And petitioner was deprived of his constitutional rights, including that of being tried by an impartial jury as recognized by Thomas. Furthermore, as mentioned before, this honorable court and other military courts have all ruled that, and I quote, 
Once the issue of command influence is properly placed at issue, no reviewing court may properly affirm findings and sentence unless the court is persuaded beyond a reasonable doubt that the findings and sentence have not been affected by the command influence. End quote. U.S. v. Thomas 22MJ388 CMA Lexus 15022-1986 U.S. v. Witt 73MJ738 CCA Lexus 383-2014 U.S. v. Mobley U.S.A. FCCA CCA Lexus 1102-2013 U.S. v. Johnson U.S.A. FCCA CCA Lexus 1025 213. Page 21. Petitioner respectfully asks, does not the above evidence together show beyond reasonable doubt that Fort Polk's command in the persons of Colonel Bloss and C.H. Colonel Derbyshire influenced the members into findings of guilty that the facts show they are in error? Given their relationship to the convening authority, does not their very presence in the courtroom constitute unlawful command influence? Based on all of the above, Petitioner respectfully asks that his honorable court set aside or reverse with prejudice and dismiss the findings and sentence by the members and immediately release Petitioner from confinement. Lastly, Petitioner respectfully appeals as a human being to each honorable judge's humanity to please know that regardless of what decision your honor makes, please know that the Petitioner is actually innocent of all the crimes he was convicted of. In Petitioner's case, this is why CID found absolutely no physical evidence to corroborate any of the charges or oral testimony against him, Appendix B. And further evidence of this is the attached affidavits by Doris Cummings Beeler, Appendix D, and Tanya Favela Loya, Appendix D, which reflect who both Sandra and Kirsten Loya really are, what they did, and what actually occurred. Petitioner's character reference letters and previous OERs, Appendix E, which reflect who Petitioner actually is, and the letters by attorney Jerry H. Gonzalez, Appendix D, who, as a civilian attorney and a friend of the court, expresses the injustice perceived by the general public in Petitioner's case, and who, because of this injustice, is beginning to call for the establishment of conviction integrity units within Army's prosecutorial branch. Thank you. Respectfully and sincerely, Alexander Loya, Petitioner. This concludes the issue of unlawful command influence from the ACCA document. For comments or questions, you can reach us by email at yappy at post.com 
Also, check us out on Twitter at Dorisi and our Facebook pages at Yappy Studio or Louisiana Entertainment Association. Look for the Military Injustice logo on the Anything and Everything with Doris podcast for another episode of Military Injustice. Thank you for listening to a Military Injustice episode on the Anything and Everything with Doris podcast.